My next guest is often cited by the authors I speak to on the corner table. His new book, Head, Hand, Heart, calls for a better appreciation of human talent in a time when the word talent is more often used to describe the city trader than the nurse on the night shift, and where the good life is reserved for a self-perpetuating class of aspirational cognitive or head workers whose often vague relationship to society's gains contrast with those of the hand-and-heart professions we now like to call essential. David Goodhart is sitting with me here. David, thanks for coming on. Thank you for inviting me. So tell us, why have you chosen Piccola in Hampstead? What I really like about it is that it serves my favourite dish in the world, which is pasta fagioli. Which is a sort of a bean soup. Like a kind of bean soup, yeah. It's really almost a meal in itself. So if you have pasta fagioli as a starter, you have to have something quite light as a main course. Will it be the fagioli? Oh, definitely, yeah. Have you got pasta fagioli? Yeah. And I'll take the pan-fried sardines. Could I have a tonic water as well with ice and lemon? Let me start just by recounting the last time I was out with friends before the UK went into lockdown. It was a Sunday afternoon, late February. Five of us sat round a table at the pub all knowing that the pandemic was going to hit, all knowing that in the morning we'd be off to our regular jobs, handling WordPress engines and spreadsheets, and so staring into our pints and then at each other and asking, what on earth is the point of people like us at a time like this? Were we coming, do you think, to a, a realisation of what you refer to in the book as peak head? Well, yeah, I mean, I mean don't be too self-denigrating. Um, I, I mean, you know, cognitive jobs are of value i mean particularly the kind of higher end you know i mean we you know our species needs high intelligence arguably more now than than ever but i mean the, the basic point that the point of the book is in the title head hand heart and and my argument is that we yes we've allocated too much reward and prestige to one cluster of human aptitudes and therefore inevitably you know there's a degree of zero sum about this we've inevitably drawn drawn prestige and reward away from from the other clusters of aptitudes and i think we've got out of kilter and we need to uh, we, we need to rebalance and i think it's kind of happening anyway i mean as you, you use the phrase that i use in the book peak head i mean i think um there is a growing realization that we have overexpanded higher education which means that too many people particularly in the kind of middle and lower cognitive ability levels people who would have a generation or two ago who would have been doing HNDs, HNCs, higher technical manual qualifications of one kind or another are, are probably now going to university um, and they aren't necessarily benefiting from it. Some of them are, uh, but, but many of them won't be, at least in, in strict economic terms, because the, the graduate income premium has fallen, as you'd expect, when so many, people, so many more people do go to university. And also, what, a third of graduates are not even in graduate jobs for five, ten years after graduating, and that's with a very elastic definition of what a graduate job is. So this is both economically and politically, culturally dysfunctional because we have massive skill shortages in skilled trades, in middling technical functions. Indeed, one of the reasons why the testing system may not be working particularly well in Britain at the moment is because we lack the the kind of white-coated lab technician people. We've got plenty of academic scientists, uh, and we need them too, but we're, we're missing the the white-coated lab technicians. And, of course, we have these huge recruitment crises in the caring functions, in nursing, care homes. Uh, you know, we're going to need 150,000 dementia nurses, specialist dementia nurses, in a few years' time. And so we're, we're going to have to shift the kind of cultural and the, and, the, and the financial signals for this 
to happen. And so you posed that question quite early on in the book. Uh, I'm quoting from it here. Can we really argue that the work of a junior account manager at a city PR firm is more useful than that of a bus driver or an adult care worker. It's important to recognise that this book isn't opposed to meritocracy per se, because meritocracy is the theme that runs throughout it, but rather argues for a more complex form of meritocracy that recognises human ability across multiple yeah. spectra. Yeah, so when meritocracy is it's kind of the worst system apart from all the others. But I want to see it more as a, you know, let's think about meritocracy as a pragmatic kind of labour market principle. It's about getting the right people into the right job. So if you're in favour of meritocratic selection for jobs, but you're against a meritocratic society, this is quite a fine distinction. I think there is a real distinction there. It's a bit like the distinction between Lionel Jospin talked about being in favour of a market economy, but not a market society. And I think you can apply the same thing to meritocracy in a way. It's, um, it's not an, I mean, it's, not, it's, it's never going to be, I don't think it should be an ideal, partly because of the hubris that it creates amongst the successful and the fact that because it's based on merit, the unsuccessful have only themselves to blame, which is not a comfortable psychological place to be yeah. in. So, well, you know, like, like all principles, it needs to be balanced by other principles. Like in this case, I guess the principle of the, the moral, political, legal equality of all people. So, we, you know, we, we want to balance the idea of rewarding those with, with relevant merit with a broader, almost sort of Christian, social Christian notion of everybody being of value. And therefore, you know, we need to have high minimum wages and um, we need to respect people doing basic jobs. Here I'd like to quote from Matthew Crawford's The Case for Working With Your Hands where he says, The satisfactions of manifesting oneself concretely in the world through manual competence have been known to make a man quiet and easy. They seem to relieve him of the felt need to offer chattering interpretations of himself (laughs) to vindicate his worth. (laughs) He can simply point the building stands, the car now runs, the lights are on. (laughs) So let's get on to handwork here. Why, when the achievements of manual work are so tangible, do we as a society not recognise them? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a deep historical roots, probably going back to classical civilization, reinforced maybe by Christianity, the idea of you know, the platonic purity of thought and the corruption and sinfulness of the embodied. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, I mean, you know, for, for many of the last few hundred years society hasn't been able to afford a very large cognitive class it tends to have been a class drawn mainly from the already privileged and then you look at institutions like Oxford and Cambridge you know almost all our prime ministers and you know big slice of our cabinet ministers over the last 150 years or so have been through these institutions you know similarly with the Ivy League universities in, in America or the Grande École in France you have a kind of you know all sorts of inbuilt biases I think towards the cognitive analytical. I mean, I think other countries, I mean, Germanic countries, Germany, Austria, the Netherlands, uh, and Scandinavian countries often do continue to have greater respect for practical intelligence, manual, technical, skilled trades work. And that is partly because they, in the case of Germany, I know Germany reasonably well, I worked there as a journalist for three years. So, you know, it would be perfectly imaginable that my children or your children would do an apprenticeship in Germany. Mm. It's kind of classless. Uh, you get a lot of middle-class kids doing apprenticeships. 50% of school leavers still do an apprenticeship in Germany. It's kind of, you know, if you can't think of what to do, if you're a kind of 18-year-old German, you, you might well do an apprenticeship. Mm. Whereas here, you sort of think, if you can't think, what do you go to university? And, you know, and two and a half, three years later, 
you know, you would have, you'd have been paid, not terribly well, but you'd have been paid through that period, and you'd have acquired a skill that, that is a kind of bread ticket for life. I mean, quite a few people, I think, in, I was looking at this the other day, in Angela Merkel's cabinet, quite a few of them have apprenticeships. They also have university degrees. Someone like Jens Spahn did a bank Kaufmann banking salesman uh, apprenticeship, and then... I think he worked in a bank for a while and then some years later decided to go to university. I think he's got a PhD in something as well. Mm. But there's a sort of sense that they're, that they're all sort of at some level on the same level. I mean, obviously not completely, but... I mean, I think the whole concept of parity esteem, of esteem is a bit of a red herring. I mean, there's never going to be complete parity of esteem. You know, if you're, a, if, you're a, if you're a genius, you know, if you're Einstein, you should be in a bloody university, you know, telling us how the motions of the planets work. You refer also to what you call the missing middle, which you suggest could, if filled, solve the bigger problems that we face here. Um, what does this phrase mean, first of all? I mean, I suppose um, technically what it means is people who used to do, in their hundreds of thousands, used to do so-called level four, level five qualifications. In the, in the jargon of international education, level three is A-levels or its equivalent and level six is a university, is a bachelor's degree at a university. So four and five are the kind of skills, higher technical skills that polytechnics used to teach. And many of those skills are still taught at the former polytechnics now universities. Um, they're often done, I think, in a in a kind of over academicized way. You know, if you if you're doing a construction management degree, you have lots of sort of general um, economics business studies, possibly a bit of accountancy kind of thrown in, which may or may not be useful. You probably spend rather less time than, than your equivalent 30 years ago would have done actually on a construction site. So whether the, whether the person emerging from university with a construction management degree is more useful to a big construction company today than his or her equivalent 30, 40 years ago, um, I assume probably not, or, or not so much more useful that it justifies three or four years, full-time study, probably at a residential university, with as I said, well, lots of kind of bells and whistles attached to make it academic, to kind of justify its, its, its existence in a university. Yeah, so, the, so the, in educational terms, the missing middle is, is, the, is those courses that people used to do when they were training to, to do skilled trades, when they were training to be an electrician or a plumber. You know, it, it required a, a kind of cognitive aspect to it. You, know, you need, need to know some of the theory of electricity if you're an electrician, um, otherwise you blow everyone up. But that used to be done in, this, in, in these, you know, at FE colleges or polytechnics, in these intermediate institutions, uh, often with much greater flexibility, so you could work while doing the courses. You know, you didn't have to be a full-time student. And I mean, you know, this is what we should go back to. Not for everybody. I mean, you know, those people who have a real passion for or just a great ability at the more kind of abstract academic intelligence should should continue down that track. But I think you know, I think if you look at the kind of range of human abilities, um, there are only a lim- limited number of people who have that sort of high academic analytical intelligence and many many of the rest of us um, should be doing other things I think I'll go for the uh, linguini alla carlo please oh, I do like a bit of liverush it's one of those sort of things that you never cook for yourself at home any longer I'll, I'll have the liverush yeah yeah so on your reflections of your own education some of which appears in the book 
what do you think was the biggest influence in terms of how you approached this subject? Yeah, I do weave a bit of autobiography through the book. I had a vague recollection of doing an IQ test when I was sort of 10 or 12. I mean, and I kind of think I, I, I was around. I mean, I think I may have been a smidgen above average. Um, nothing to write home about particularly. But I kind of reflected on my own... On the, in a sense, the kind of the context dependency and to some extent arbitrariness, you know, of of sort of intelligence, you know, of cleverness, you know, you need you need you need encouragement, you need um, you need a kind of audience, you need a sympathetic audience. Uh, many of us don't have one. I remember when when I was a teenager, I, I didn't think of myself as particularly bright. I went to a very famous school, the same one as our prime minister, uh, and I failed my A levels. I got a D and an E and an F in my A-levels. A few years later, having retaken them, and I went to Kent University for a year and then to York, I ended up getting a first-class degree at... I mean, actually, one of the reasons why I did well at York is that I got interested in... in I got genuinely interested in, in ideas and academic things, intellectual things, which I'm sort of slightly ashamed to say was partly because I briefly got sort of hooked on student Marxism. But my... My dad was a Tory MP and I did go to Wheaton, so I think being a Trotskyist for a year or two is perhaps excusable. Yeah, and I ended up editing, you know, an intellectual monthly magazine. You know, many of my friends uh, I think of as far cleverer than me. I'm really interested in ideas, but I'm not particularly quick. I'm not, um, you know, I'm not very good at the sort of pattern recognition, you know, friends who are good at maths or engineering or, you know, far better at the practical things of life. Hopeless, pretty, pretty hopeless at DIY. I quite, I, I like trying my hand, but um, shelves have been known to fall down. Um, um, but it's you know, confidence and context is so important. What I learned from reflecting on my own, my own experience is that not exactly arbitrariness, but the context dependency. And I mean, I think there is such a thing as you know that there are kind of innate factors in intelligence, but they're ob- obviously also hugely important. Mm. environmental factors and chance factors mm-hmm. and temperamental and personality factors yeah and where you land i suppose historically i mean you mentioned that a lot of the anger among young graduates today and the turn towards extreme sort of marxist ideas is to do with this absence of a sense in which you can drop out or, or see your chances fall in one area of life and find a way through in others the way that mm. it seems previous generations throughout the 20th century tell of in their success stories no, I mean, I mean, this is one of my main points of the book, in a way, that we we have this single ladder up. We have a very narrow, we've created a very narrow definition of what it is to lead a successful life. We are germinating dissatisfaction everywhere. And actually, you know, even even in times when people were, were poorer, when there were kind of more, when there were more little ladders up, rather than there being one big ladder. You know, if you miss that big ladder, for whatever reason, you don't do A-levels and go to university. Um, I mean, you know, life is not necessarily a disaster, and there are lots of people who, are, who live perfectly happy lives and are not full of resentment. And, uh, but, when, you know, we're talking aggregates here. I think there is, you know, I call it the, the, um, the, it's the 1550 problem, too. I mean, that when 15% of your school or town people go to college and you don't, it doesn't really matter. When 50% do or even 40% do and you don't, then it's a completely different psychological ballgame. And there aren't any longer the other sources of esteem, or the other sources of esteem are much weaker, you know, that just being a good, hard-working person, you know, the dignity of labour, being, a, you know, if you're a man, being a good husband and father. I mean, all, all, obviously all of these things are still 
esteemed to degree, but they often struggle to substitute for the prestigious cognitive safety zone that that we're all encouraged to strive for these days. That is a real problem, and I, and I think we, we want to return to a time when we had lots more little ladders up, a, a sense that, um, that there is no single scale of worth. You know, there are multiple scales of worth. A good definition of equality, really, one that we should adopt, isn't the equality to achieve the highest position, but the equality of opportunity to fail and not be ruined. Mm-hmm. Mm. What do you think it will take to entice men in particular to join the caring professions? Because doesn't the friction there lie in the fact that when a woman, say, qualifies as a mechanic, she is seen to have broken through a glass ceiling, whereas Mm. a man who trains to become a nurse is rather thought to have simply withdrawn from competition? Aren't the incentives just completely skewed and lopsided? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm very interested in this question of whether men are going to start moving into the heavily professional public care economy. I mean, nursing is, in this country, is 88%. NHS nurses are 88% female. Primary school teachers are 85% female. People working in social care homes are 82% female, I think. Um, I, think this is, I think this will change. It'll, it'll change partly through economic and cultural signals. I read some the other day that more people are applying for nursing positions, nurse training positions, partly, I think, as a result of the pandemic. Mm. Um, you know, the, 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 the elevated status of, of people who are on the front line, the feeling, you know, people are looking for purpose and meaning in their lives, and yes. this is obviously a purposeful and meaningful thing. And there are... I mean, one of the reasons for the recruitment crisis in these areas is, is partly the benign reason that women have many more choices now. Go back a generation or two... Um, there were there were glass ceilings, and um, you know some many professions you you couldn't you couldn't continue after you got married. I mean, famously in the civil service, but but women had it was it was far harder for women to progress up the professional and career ladder. So you ended up having absolutely brilliant women running primary schools or you know being ward sisters in hospitals. You know their their daughters are all partners in city law firms or um, you know they're in the cabinet or whatever um the public service has got a free lunch from really really able women i think it's a really interesting phenomenon and that doesn't happen so much now because those women are freer to um compete right across the economy with men mm. but what's what's not happened is that men haven't moved in as it were to make up for the shortfall of women in many of those areas when they have moved in it it's complicated too because they often uh, you know, men, whether it's cultural or biological, who knows? But, you know, men are often more disagreeable, more ambitious, more work-focused than women, and so end up in all the senior nursing positions. There's something called the the glass escalator for men, <laughs> right? Um, uh, which they, that creates its own problems too. I mean, I think it creates a degree of resentment amongst female nurses that. Uh, in many in many hospitals, they're bossed around by male sort of executive nurses. Right. Will it happen more? I think it will. It'll have to, partly because there won't be other jobs. Uh, so many of these jobs are the jobs that are not uh, automatable. They're not going to be subject to AI. They can't be exported. You can't export your granny in an adult social care home. Well, you can, but it's tricky. Uh, so they, they're, they're rooted, necessarily rooted here, and I think... The pay and status will rise. I think the status has already risen. 
uh, as a result of the pandemic. I think the pay will follow. I think also, or perhaps a degree of automation, a degree of automation, it's limited, but we're seeing this in Japan, the use of robots and so on in, in elderly care centres. I think we'll, we'll see more of that here. And, and men will follow the technology. Mm. In the meantime, though, we need to raise the status of domesticity in general, well, not yeah. just in the profession. No, well, yeah, care yeah, that the is one of the points I make, that if you're raising the status of care in the public economy, I think it almost follows, it's sort of a necessary condition of that that you raise it in the private realm too. And this is where I have a bit of an argument with perhaps one of the more controversial bits of the book. I, implicitly, I have a bit of an argument with the priorities of a lot of the women's equality movement or certainly the most influential parts of the women's equality movement of the last 20 or 30 years, which has focused overwhelmingly on career success for women or you know, as level a playing field as possible given the fact that women have children and still often want to have children um, at the most level possible playing field between men and women in, in professional careers and, and, that's all, and that's all fine I'm, obviously I'm not opposed to that but in the process it has it's kind of sort of masculinised the argument it's all, almost a sort of caricature of a sort of a male disdain or a certain kind of male disdain yes. for the private realm of the of, of the family and domesticity that okay well that that's kind of that's women's work i mean it's almost as if that is that is lower status women's work but it's becoming more even and i think the state should do a lot more i mean we're we're real laggards internationally and single earner households get absolutely smashed in the tax system uh, we don't even allow couples bringing up children together to share their tax allowances. It was absolutely crazy. Most rich countries do. Which international examples do you think would be worth imitating? I mean, some sort of melange of, of, of all of the more generous ones. I mean, just make it, make it easier. Mm. And you'd also have, you'd have lower levels of separation and sing, single familydom. I think if you, if, you, if you supported the family more uh, at the time of highest stress, which is when you know, if you've got two or even three kids... You know, all, all under six. Say eh? it's a massively stressful period. Uh, it's often, you know, if you're if you're if you're in a professional career, it's often at a time of your life when work is also at its most demanding. So make it easier for one of the two parents to stay at home for a bit longer uh, without having the necessity of returning to work. And you can do that, as I say, through. Reducing the tax burden on those families, allowing them to allowing the stayer and the and the worker to to share their tax allowances. That would mean, you know, with, what's the tax allowance now? About twelve grand, is it? Twelve, twelve and a half grand? I think it's about that. Yes. Uh, yeah. You know, so put those two together. It's twenty. You don't pay any tax until you earn yeah. twenty five grand. You know, the average income is twenty eight or twenty nine. So you know, you'd be taxed on only a very very small proportion of your income. Mm. I mean, we do already. Obviously, we have various forms of family support, but I think we should think harder about about that and um yeah by all means encourage encourage men to do it uh, you know the absolutely vital and essential work of nurture um whether it's looking after young children or old people or both at the same time yes and i mean all the surveys show that that most women in britain don't actually share the priorities of you know 50 50 on boards and so on their, their priority is much more making it easier to work part-time or not at all when children are very young. And I, I don't see why that should be seen as, as, a, as a conservative idea, but it does tend to be. 
as you yourself clarify towards the end of the book, the triumvirate of head, hand and heart are not separate categories, Mm. um, but are very much interdependent uh, and that it is the head work in our society that is lacking much more in hand and heart than the hand and heart are necessarily lacking in, in head. Mm. Are the clever people in power whom we need to understand this clever enough to, do you think? Well, politics is a sort of funny old game. I mean, you, you get quite a range, I think, of you know, different kinds of abilities, but it tends to reward verbal fluency, relative degree of gregariousness, I suppose, a degree of kind of moral flexibility. I mean, it's sort of, in a way, in a good cause. You know, democracy requires that politicians sort of change their positions on things. But I mean, I think the I mean, I think I quote Toby Young in the book as sort of saying how much better everything would be if the people in the top fifteen percent of the bell curve for intelligence ran everything. And I think that is completely wrong. I think one of the problems is that clever people have a certain experience of the world that isn't the same as everybody else's. They find certain things easier, possibly some things more difficult. And you want to, particularly in representative institutions, political, organisational perhaps even commercial, you you actually want a a range of intelligences and a range of personality types. And the current selection and promotion system tends to select and promote on relatively narrow cognitive grounds. If you look at the kind of decisions that were being taken, you know, in the Second World War and its immediate aftermath, the creation of the post-war British society, a welfare state, etc., etc., and then you look at the decisions that have been taken, say, in the last 10 or 15 years over some pretty fundamental things, you know, the Iraq war, the financial crisis, austerity. And all of these people would have been university educated. It doesn't suggest that the greater, the greater selection by cognitive ability and the greater focus on that as a qualification for top jobs has not produced any obvious improvement mm. in the way that uh, our lives and institutions are, are, are managed. One of the things about highly intelligent people is that they're very good at at rationalising things to themselves because they're used to being the prize winners of our society. Mm. They often lack the kind of humility to see things as they really are. Thanks very much for introducing Nicola to me, David, and thanks very much for coming on The Corner Table. Well, thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Thanks for the pasta fagioli. My pleasure. Thanks for listening. As always, special thanks is owed to Boogie Belgique for the soundtrack.